Genesis 9, and we're picking it up in verse 18. So we've had the flood, we've had all flesh wiped off the face of the earth, sin judged, only Noah and his family are saved, um, carried through that flood, through the building of the ark. We have God's provision in preserving mankind and preserving every beast of the field and everything that creeps and crawls, the birds of the air. Um, God preserves that. And we have Noah and his family. We've, we've covered them getting off the ark and the command to be fruitful and multiply. All of the animals, everything is still going to reproduce after its own kind. And we mentioned that this is almost, you could use the word like a, a fresh start or a new beginning, right? And in the place of Adam and Eve, we have Noah and his wife, and then they have children, three sons, and they've got their wives, and all of them are told, <clears throat> be fruitful and multiply. Sin has been judged, the flood has come, the flood has subsided, God has promised never again will I destroy the earth with a flood. There is a sign of, a, of that covenant with all flesh. We covered that two weeks ago. And so now, picking it back up after that covenant sign has been given and that promise of God has been issued, <clears throat> verse 18 of Genesis 9, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Keep that in mind. It's going to be important today and moving throughout uh, the rest of Genesis. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That's important. We're not going to linger here long, but when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to defending the faith, when it comes to uh, telling people what the biblical record of where mankind came from, this is important. We've mentioned it before, so just... Briefly, again, we're not going to dwell here long. There are different theories that people have as to, you know, even were Adam and Eve the only two people or were there people before them or were there other people at the time of Adam and Eve? And where did all these other people groups come from? There's different theories and different ways that people try to make sense of it all. But the biblical teaching is simple and straightforward. From Noah and his three sons came all the people groups that are dispersed over the entire earth. Now, yes, wise people of the world, and I use air quotes for a purpose, wise people of the world say, that's kind of insane to believe that just Noah, his three sons and their wives, that they, they populated the entire earth. Yet, it is the biblical teaching. It's not foolish. It's not crazy to believe that. It's right to believe that. And to understand that when Scripture says that from these, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Furthermore, in, in Acts 17, you can turn there if you would like to. <clears throat> but in the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul, speaking in the Areopagus, says this. <clears throat> well, we'll start in verse 22. 
Verse 26 is what I really want you to focus in on. But verse 22 says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man, or depending on your translation, it may say one blood, but He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, yet He is not, <clears throat> yet He is actually not far from each of us. But notice what Paul said again in verse 26. He, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. <clears throat> from one man, namely Adam, here in Genesis, after the flood, from Noah and his sons, come all the people that will be dispersed throughout all the earth. It's important for us to understand this. And ultimately, the chief reason that this is important, because of Adam, we are born in sin. And again, if that line was cut off, there would literally have to be a new start, a new creation. God would have to form another man and, and literally have a restart. But it's important for us to understand that because of Adam, we are born in sin. Romans 5 says, because uh, because of that one man's sin, sin entered into the world because all sinned. Adam is our representative. He is our head. He was a type of Christ. And that line is carried on. It wasn't discontinued. It was carried on. Mankind still born in sin. But also, God told the serpent, there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head or bruise your head. That's very important. That line, that lineage is still carrying on. So from one man, ultimately, all the people groups, all the nations of the earth came from that one man. That's important. That's, a, that's an important theological truth, doctrinal truth that, we, that we've got to grasp. There's a purpose in that. There's a reason why it's important for us to say, no, it, it is from that one man. Because in Adam all sinned. This is why the repercussion of sin. We're all born in sin. We're all in need of a Savior. Not only that. It says here that all the peoples that were dispersed. That would be dispersed. Um, in Acts 17. Paul says the people groups and all the nations. And he determined their boundaries. He determined their boundaries. And that they would seek after God and perhaps find him. But He's not far off from us. So you, again, you see God's great sovereign reign over all of creation. And God working all things according to His purposes, according to His plan. You see that here. So when you're reading the book of Genesis, when you're reading elsewhere in Scripture, and you come across, it would be so easy for us to say, 
These were the sons of Noah. These three uh, were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. It might not seem important to us at first blush. Might say, oh, well, that's just a fact. That's just a simple, I, I, I need to get to the important stuff. That's important stuff. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. So again, I would, I would make the encouragement as we study the Word at home, among peers, as a family, don't rush over anything in Scripture. Read it. Study it. Take your time. Ponder it. Even some verses that seemingly at first blush you say, well, where's the significance of that? Ponder it. Meditate on it. See if there's a connection with other portions of Scripture. A last note on that. Sometimes you'll hear the quandary or the question raised, well, what about, what about people who have never heard the gospel? What about some remote tribe out in the jungle somewhere? They've never heard the gospel. Ultimately, at some point, every tribe, tongue, and nation, we are at least able to say that their ancestors knew the truth about God. At some point, in every tribe, tongue, in every nation's history, there was a knowledge of God. You say, well, how can we say that? Because we know that all of the people dispersed throughout the earth came from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They populated the earth. All tribes. So there was a knowledge of God, what had happened, a knowledge of the truth. Now we would say, well, now so many generations have passed. We do legitimately have people on this earth that they don't, they, they have never heard the gospel. I agree with that. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying that at some point in that nation or in that tribe or in that people's history, there was a knowledge of God. That's significant. That's important. Can it be that through the generations, the, any light that was there in a people group becomes darkness and people completely forget the knowledge of God and they're totally blinded to that? Yeah. And in those cases, we say what can be known about God is clearly shown to them through creation. So that all men are accountable. Nobody is off the hook. All people everywhere are responsible, are accountable for knowing and acknowledging God. Now, I believe I spent enough time there. The sermon's not on all of those things. But all of those are food for thought. All of those are important truths. Now in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soul. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Shall he be to his brothers? He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we come to 
what is now in this new beginning, in this fresh start, what we have here is the first recorded sin post-flood. Right? So, hearken back to the creation account. We have the record of the first sin of Adam and Eve. They took of the fruit of the tree and they ate. They were guilty. They were naked and ashamed. They went and hid from God. God calls to them, where are you? He curses the serpent. Um, tells woman that her pain will be increased in childbirth, that there will be enmity, but her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. He tells Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. But then, in a miraculous, gracious, merciful act, he covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Which, by the way, they had tried to cover themselves, but God covers their nakedness and their shame for them. So keep that in mind as we look at this account, because you will notice similarities. Noah began to be a man of the soul. <clears throat> he planted a vineyard. And nothing sinful there. Working the soil, he was a farmer. Planted a vineyard. The vineyard produced a harvest. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. What an, what an embarrassment. I'm not saying that to pick on Noah. I'm saying given the event that we're looking at here. What an embarrassment. What a shameful thing. To become drunk. To uncover yourself. And pass out. Sinful. Drunkenness is a sin. Nakedness. Being exposed. Uncovering yourself. It's a shameful thing. And so we have the first recorded sin post-flood. Now, in this instance, we don't have God coming to Noah and saying, what have you done? What is this thing you've done? Or anything like that. What we have is Ham, his son, sees what has occurred. Now, I will say this. There is much speculation over possibilities that could have happened. Possibilities that may have happened. All of those things at the end of the day cannot be substantiated though. There are those who would say that there's a chance Ham may have had homosexual interactions with his father. There are those who say that Ham may have had heterosexual relations with his own mother, with Noah's wife. Something else was done other than him seeing the nakedness of his father. And again, I will say, at the end of the day, all of those things can only be chalked up as speculation. None of those things can be substantiated. What we do have plainly written for us and what can be substantiated is that he saw the nakedness of his father. And in that moment, the son knew our father is drunk. He's exposed. And what does he choose to do? Cain saw the nakedness of his father. And tells his two brothers outside. Now here again, there's speculation. Did he mock Noah? Did he go outside and mock Noah? Was he picking on his father? Uh, was he being crude about what had happened? Or did he just say, hey. And he, he didn't do anything about it. He just went and 
told his brothers. And again, I don't want to speculate too much there. What I want to do is point out and hone in on what we do see happening and draw some connections to what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were exposed, and they were ashamed, they did try to make coverings for themselves, but then they went and hid because they understood this is shameful. We don't, we don't want to be seen in our guilt. We don't want to be seen in our shame. And they run and hide. And again, we know that that ends with God making coverings for them and covering their shame and their sin. So what we do have plainly for us without any speculation is Ham saw the nakedness and the shame of his father and did nothing about it except tell the two brothers. And then what they do, I would say, is pretty telling. Now, what I'm about to say is a little bit of me of me speculating. But I believe it's a biblical speculation. I would never sit up here and, and just throw something out there and say, well, it makes sense, so I'm going to throw it out there. But in looking at all that we've studied through Genesis thus far, <clears throat> to me it's as if maybe there was a chance. Maybe there was a chance that Shem and Japheth, knowing, knowing the story that was passed down, knowing the history of what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden and the history of mankind as they knew it up to that point. Maybe they were aware that when, when God came to Adam and Eve in the garden that He covered, He gave them coverings. He covered their nakedness and their shame. So in an effort to mirror or reflect God's actions, Shem and Japheth say, we need to cover our father. We need to tend to him. We need to... Cover that shame. Cover that nakedness. And in an attempt to, to reflect what God had done in the garden, they say, let's go cover him up. And also note that they, they walk backwards because they didn't even want to see. They didn't want their eyes to behold their father in a state of shamefulness. In a state of stupor. They didn't even want their eyes to look upon it. They didn't want to acknowledge it. They turn away from it. And in that, we're reminded that God Himself, not that, not that Shem and Japheth were acting as God, but God Himself, it's not, there's a repulsion, there's a hatred of sin. We're not supposed to look upon sin. Certainly not supposed to take it lightly. And so they don't even, they don't even look. They walk backwards and cover Noah. In the garden, when the first sin occurred, God Himself made a covering to cover the sin, and the nakedness, and the shamefulness of Adam and Eve. Here in this account, Noah gets drunk, uncovers himself, passes out in his tent. Ham sees it, does nothing about it, is unmoved, unfazed by it. Tells his brothers about it. And they decide, we've got to do something about this. We need to cover our father. And they tend to him. Now, again, some of that was my speculation. I would like to believe. That's me. 
it makes biblical sense to me that Shem and Japheth probably had some memory or some knowledge of, hey, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their nakedness was covered by God. We need to cover our father. But even if it was just a simplistic, innate knowledge that we're not supposed to be uncovered like that. Our father needs to be clothed. They still acted in a way that reflected and mirrored the covering of sin and shame in the garden. And wouldn't even allow themselves to look on the lewdness, the lewd state that their father was in. And in that, I would like to point this out. Sin is not something to be coddled. Sin is not something to be handled lightly. Sin is not something to laugh at. Sin is not something to mock. Sin is not something to enjoy. Sin is not something to overlook. Sin is something that there must be something done about it. Ultimately, we know that the only thing that has ever truly been done to fix the problem of sin is Christ's death upon the cross. That His blood has covered all those who would ever believe. That He has laid down His life as a sacrifice to pay the price for the sins of all who ever believe. And it was a sacrifice that was accepted by the Father. So that all who believe will. It is definite. It is sure. All who believe will be saved. Will have eternal life. But in our own lives as Christians. As Christians first. For the non-believer. That's their only hope. To believe in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. To be born again and place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. For the Christian. For the Christian. How do we handle or approach sin in our own lives? We actually talked about this a little in Sunday school. It came up a bit towards the end. Sin is not something to be coddled. Sin is not something to be overlooked. Sin is not something to say, well, I'll handle that later. I'll get to that later. We shouldn't have any desire to even look upon sin, to entertain sin. But we see Shem and Japheth cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that it, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. I mentioned earlier, that would be important. Now Canaan is the son of Ham. So the, the curse is actually upon Canaan, the son of Ham. <clears throat> if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Israelites, which we haven't even got to the Israelites yet, but God's people, the Israelites, and the Canaanites were not bosom buddies. They weren't besties. They weren't friends. They were enemies. Here's some of the people groups that would be could be included in the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites could specifically mean the literal people in the land of Canaan, but all of the people included within the larger scope of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, 
and the Perizzites. So again, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, if you say, oh, well, what are, what, what's Israel's dealings with the Amorites? Were they friends? Were they buddies? No. What's Israel's dealings with the Jebusites and the Girgashites? Did they ever have wars and battles and fights among them? Yes. But ultimately, we also know this. That when God tells people, there is a land that I have prepared for you. It's a land, it is, it is the land of Canaan. That is the land that God's people, after being brought out of Egypt, that's the land that they were to go into and conquer the land. So this is important. Remember earlier where I said seeds, seeds are planted in Genesis that you see them, you see them sprout up later. Sometimes it's later in Genesis, sometimes it's later in the New Testament. But keep this in mind. It's not just thrown in there as an aside that, oh yeah, Ham, he was the father of Canaan. No, this is important. There is a curse that is issued. Oh yeah. Very similar to a curse that is issued before the flood. Remember when we talked about Cain and Abel? Cain was cursed. But Cain was allowed to multiply, to reproduce, to populate, to have his own city. And we talked about that ungodly lineage, that ungodly line that we learn about in Scripture. Well, here we have the first recorded sin post-flood. We have the sons of Noah covering his sin and shame, but now we also have one of the sons, one of the children being cursed. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is, that is part of the curse and the blessing. That is part of the proclamation that proceeds forth out of Noah's mouth. Let Canaan be a servant of servants. I'll leave it at that for, for now because we'll, we're going to get to the time where we're, where we're actually talking about Israel going into and supposed to overtake the promised land and overtake those around them. But remember this for now. It's here in Genesis 9. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. You see a curse doled out. There's going to be once more. As we talked about previously. We're going to see that from the line of, from the line of Ham, Canaan. We're going to see the people groups that are constantly attacking the Israelites. Constantly going to war with the Israelites. Constantly trying to take captive God's people. They're going to come from, from this line. And yet, God allows them to, to thrive, to, to prosper in some ways, to become great nations, to become powerful nations with powerful armies. And all of this, ultimately, 
part of God's plan to show his great power and his great might and his great ability to save that which is his. Now that's big, big picture. And it also points to the fact that further down the line, the door of salvation will be swung open for even the people from the cursed line of Canaan to receive salvation. Now that's big, big picture. Because we know that it was never God's intention to only save ethnic Israel. To only save those who are literally of the line, the ethnic line of Abraham. So here throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see all of those ites, Canaanites, Jebusites, Girgashites. Those were the people. They hated the people of God. The Amorites, they, they were definitely against God and against His people. They were idolaters. They, were, they worshipped false gods. They were some of the most wicked people on earth. So that later in the New Testament when we read, whosoever believes, we say, wow, that's, that is huge. That is miraculous. That it isn't just the Jews, it's Gentiles, all people groups all over the world, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, all whom God draws to himself, all whom God grants salvation, they're going to be saved, not just ethnic Jews, but even people that have direct connections to the cursed line of Canaan. All of those ites that came after, all of the tribes and tongues and nations all over the world. Whoever looks upon the Son and believes will be saved. And we say, what a miracle. What a gift of grace. What mercy that God has displayed. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even those who were at one time enemies of God, even those who were at one time enemies of His people, are brought in. But for our purposes today and, and for where, where we are up to our study in Genesis so far, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Remember that. There's a curse given. There's a purpose in that curse. It will come up later. So what have we seen in our brief time of study this morning? It's important for us to know and understand that the biblical view, worldview of mankind, where we came from, from one man, God has created all peoples all over the globe. Here in Genesis 9, post-flood, it's Noah and his three sons, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We see the first recorded sin post-flood. We see one son seemingly unconcerned, unmoved, unfazed by the sin of his father and viewing that sin, viewing that nakedness. And he, all he does simply is tell his brothers about it. 
But we see those two brothers say, something must be done about this sin, about this shameful act of our father. And in an act that again I would say mirrors God covering the nakedness and the shame of Adam and Eve, in an act that reflects that, in an act that reflects God's mercy and God's grace, these two sons say, we're going to cover the nakedness and the shame of our father. And they walk backwards, not even, not even wanting to view their father in that state. And, and so we ought to remind ourselves once more, take this with you, when we ponder... When we ponder this topic of sin and how we are to view it as believers. As believers, we ought to have a clear understanding that sin is nothing to be tampered with. Sin is nothing to be entertained. Sin is nothing to keep as... You hear people say, oh, well, we've all got pet sins. Well, sin is not to be coddled. Sin isn't to be kept in a corner and we just preserve it and we entertain it and we justify it. No. We shouldn't even want to look upon things that are sinful. We shouldn't want any part of any sinful act. And we should praise God that there is a perfect covering in the person of Jesus Christ that we can be clothed in His righteousness that covers our sin and shame. There is a hope for salvation for those that are in sin, for those that are in shame. There is a covering, a perfect covering the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can be clothed in His righteousness that covers sin and shame. So we're reminded of the Gospel. And we're reminded that we see once more a line from Ham, Canaan, a line, a lineage that is cursed. But then we have Shem and Japheth that receive a blessing. And from them... We're going to see all of the nations in chapter 10. We're going to see the nations and how they begin to be dispersed through the earth and and what comes of these people groups. And then I'm already excited. It's still going to take us a, a, a few weeks to get there. But once we get to Abraham, wow. I'm excited about it. I mean, I've, I've had a blast through these first nine chapters. But once we get to Abraham... It's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. Which we got the Tower of Babel coming up too. That's going to be a good one too. That's going to be fun. But my prayer above all else is not just that we have a good time. That we, not even, not even that we enjoy these studies. Which of course I hope we are enjoying these studies. But I hope that these studies, more than just enjoying them, that God through His Spirit ministering to us through the study of His Word is bringing us into a greater sense of awe. And a greater sense of admiration of God and who He is. That we are drawn into an understanding that each and every portion of Scripture has purpose, has meaning. It's not to be overlooked. God doesn't just put filler into Scripture that we can overlook or, or read right over. But there, that every word is God-breathed and every word is profitable. That we're seeing that more clearly. That we're seeing that here in Genesis, it's setting the stage for the rest of Scripture. That it's all one great, big, miraculous story of God's plan to redeem His people so that He will be glorified throughout all of eternity. That He will be glorified both now and forever. Amen. So I pray that we would 
ponder these things, meditate on these things, think upon the Word of God, set our hearts and minds upon His Word, set our hearts and minds on things above, and that God, through His Spirit and through His Word, would draw us, for those that are saved, that He would draw us into deeper fellowship and a more mature faith. For those that are unsaved, that God would use the preaching and teaching of His Word to to draw man to salvation. And we pray that He would be glorified in all things. So let's close in a word of prayer.